0: The scene for where we're at in John 14 is that Jesus is sitting at a table. Around this table are his disciples. They are enjoying the Passover Seder. During what we call historically this Last Supper, Jesus has already washed the disciples' feet. Additionally, he's identified Judas as his betrayer. Though Judas was given a final opportunity, one last chance to repent of his sin, regrettably he remained undeterred in his resolve and therefore ends up leaving this upper room to join with his co-conspirators. And with the time that's remaining, Jesus is now maximizing these final moments with the disciples in order to teach them some important truths, specifically truths to prepare them for his coming departure. Where we left things off last Sunday, Jesus has just told these men, John 14, verse 15, He said to them, if you love me, keep my commandments. Again, last Sunday we discussed in some detail how obedience is the tangible evidence a person really does love Jesus in response to his great love for them. That our obedience is the appropriate reciprocation of his love. He's told them, if you love me, keep my commandments. In the context, aside from obedience, this specific commandment, the mention of the word commandment, it's designed to take our attention back to really the only commandment Jesus ever gave. And that's recorded earlier in this dinner in John 13, verse 34, when Jesus told these men, "...a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you love one another." Not only are we, as followers of Jesus, instructed to love one another, but this commandment—it was given with a very large caveat. We're told to love one another, not as we love ourselves, not as we love our neighbor, but we're to love one another as Jesus has loved us. Without question, such a commandment is virtually impossible without the direct involvement of Jesus himself. Which is why he continues, verse 16, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he dwells with you and will be, future tense, in you, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In light of Jesus' pending departure, the disciples' anxiety over this ominous reality, and the massive challenge of loving one another in the same manner that Jesus had loved them, Jesus makes it known to these men and to you and I that while he was leaving, while he was departing, they weren't to worry for one specific reason. Jesus says the Father. He would pray and the Father would give them another helper. In the Greek, this word helper, it's parakletos. It's a a very difficult word to translate from Greek into English. It's complicated. The word can be written as comforter. Some of your translations might have it as comforter. Or assistant. Simply put, the word parakletos simply means to come alongside for the purposes of aiding. Now, what's interesting about this helper is the adjective that Jesus uses to describe the helper. He says, another helper. Again, in the Greek, this word another, it doesn't imply an additional helper, but rather a helper of the same kind as the first. Jesus has just declared himself in the previous verses to be the way, the truth, and the life. So it's not an accent now in talking about this helper. He describes him as the spirit of truth, another helper. Jesus knew these men were going to need help. As he knows, you and I will need help, not just to live the life that we've been called to live, but to fulfill the mission that we've been charged with. Jesus understood that while he would ascend to heaven, we would need help. And thus he promises to send this help in the person of the Holy Spirit. They would not be alone, nor would they be without God's help. God would send them exactly what they needed. Again, knowing he would leave them physically Jesus is promising to send these men the Holy Spirit who, in addition to, look at it, dwelling with them, this is the word para, with, alongside, would more importantly be in them. The Greek word en, inside. We'll also see a third uh, verb used to describe the Holy Spirit in Acts 1, when Jesus, after the resurrection, before his ascension, We'll tell them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit who would come upon them. Epi. apara, interaction, the Holy Spirit being with us. The indwelling, E-N, the Spirit coming within us. As well as the Holy Spirit coming upon us. Epi. Jesus says the Holy Spirit would come. He would comfort them. He would be an aid. He would comfort them. He would indwell them. But ultimately, he would provide them power. In the original language, Jesus is saying that what he had been to these men in his physical presence, the Holy Spirit would be to them in a spiritual presence, another helper. Jesus would not leave them as orphans, promising first that the Father would send a helper, before then adding, I will come to you. Isn't that interesting? The Father will send another helper. And then Jesus later on says, I will come to you. The implications of these two statements, the Father will send, I will come, is that the presence of Jesus would manifest in these men's lives through the person of the Holy Spirit. Another not in addition to, but in the same kind of. While they were uniquely separate, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they are clearly working in tandem. In fact, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, the Apostle Paul will go so far as to actually refer to the Holy Spirit as being the Spirit of Jesus. I will come to you in the Holy Spirit. It's important to note that Jesus isn't presenting the Holy Spirit as I think some people imagine Him to be, as a mystical power, as some unknowable force. But it's quite the contrary. Not only in our text does Jesus present the Holy Spirit using masculine pronouns, He. But Jesus reveals the Spirit, He, as being an individual member of the Godhead with His own will. Yes, the Old Testament presents the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of God. Yes, He's presented in Philippians as the Spirit of Jesus. But the Holy Spirit is The third separate member of the triune nature of God. With his own personality, his own mission, his own motivations. Though the world, Jesus tells us, cannot receive the Holy Spirit. Saying because it neither sees him nor knows him. Jesus says to these disciples, you know him. And he will abide with you forever. In much the same way that Jesus came to earth to reveal the presence of His heavenly Father. We saw that illustrated in last Sunday's text. I I and the Father are one. They want to know, how do we see the Father? You see me, you know the Father. In much the same way Jesus testified of the Father, the Spirit would testify of Jesus. These men, as with you and I today, we know Jesus, we have a relationship with Jesus through and in the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, John continues, recording Jesus, saying, A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. Likely a reference to his death, and probably also a reference to his ascension. Literally. The world will see me no more. But you will see me. Obviously, probably a reference to these ten post-resurrection appearances where Jesus comes to the disciples to teach them things before his ascension. A little while longer, the world will see me no more. You will see me because I live. You will live also at that day. Which again, for context, is probably the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you and me, and I and you, no doubt the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, he who has my Father's commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. John. Sometimes it's frustrating. <laughs> he has the limitation of about a 600 word vocabulary articulating very complex ideas with the limitation of language. He has a way as a result of complicating what is rather simple once you get into the nitty-gritty. The overarching point that Jesus is making in this passage is that the ultimate role of the Holy Spirit in your life and mine, and the lives of these men, is that the Holy Spirit brings to us the presence of Almighty God, both the Father and Jesus, into our lives through His indwelling. That's what he's getting to. Now regarding the notion of the presence of God indwelling a person's life. In Colossians 1, verse 27, Paul again remarks, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of His glory and the mystery among the Gentiles. So what's the mystery? Which is Christ. In you, the hope of glory. Again, Christ in you, how? Through the indwelling spirit. This last line, where Jesus says, I will manifest myself to, to him. This, this line, it piques Judas's attention. Verse 22, Judas, and again, this is not Iscariot. John makes that clear. Uh, for the student of scripture, this is likely Thaddeus, who's a disciple mentioned in Matthew 10, verse 3. But Judas said to Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? Now, in the context of the predominant Jewish understanding of the Messiah, this question posed by Judas is completely appropriate. As a matter of fact, it indicates he's actually kind of tracking with the things that Jesus is saying. These men believe, they had been taught since since they were kids, that the Messiah, the Savior, would present himself to the entire world, not just Israel, by establishing a kingdom centered in Jerusalem. So as Judas is listening to what Jesus is saying, this notion that they would come to see Jesus as the Messiah, but the world wouldn't, that seemed inconsistent with what they had been taught in Sunday school. So that's why he asked this question. Now in response, verse 23, Jesus answers. Again, I love that. He doesn't say, you should know these things. He doesn't, Jesus never rebukes an honest question. And that's encouraging. If you have questions, realize, Jesus loves to hear them. And he loves to answer them. So he says to Judas, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine but the father's who sent me judas wants to know how the world would come to see jesus and the way that jesus had manifested himself to these men especially in light of the fact that he's leaving so jesus's response is basically we will come we will make our home with him judas is asking jesus come on man if you're departing if you're leaving how can the world see you the way that we do How will you, in a sense, make yourself known? So Jesus reiterates two simple points he's made. First, Jesus' presence would still remain active in the world. How would the world see Jesus? Well, he would see Jesus, the world would see Jesus, through the Spirit working in and through the lives of these individuals, men and women filled with the Spirit. How will the world see you, Jesus, like we do? Well, I'll still be working in you. Through you. And the world will see that. That will be testimony of me. Secondly, though Jesus would be in heaven, the tangible manifestation of his presence would be made known. Again, how? By their love for one another. Keeping that commandment. Jesus, you're leaving. How will the world come to know you? This is going to be a setback for the ministry. And Jesus is answered, guys, it's fine. I'm still going to be working. All over the place. I'm going to give you my spirit. He'll bear witness. And your love will be so supernatural that the world will see it and see me. How cool. Verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. At the close of chapter 13, Jesus' declaration that he would be departing had left these men sincerely troubled. Not only has Jesus and this whole section of Scripture sought to temper their anxieties by promising now to send a helper, the Holy Spirit. But he now also promises to leave them something amazing, his peace. Notice Jesus qualifies this by letting them know this peace. It would not be similar to what the world possessed or what they could know in the worldly system. What Jesus was offering, the peace he would provide, would be something else entirely. You know, in our world, peace, it manifests circumstantially. Like We enjoy peace when circumstances in our lives yield it. Subsequently, our our peace is robbed when circumstances in our lives take it away. Peace is dependent on circumstance. But note, Jesus is promising something much deeper than a peace that we find in the world circumstantially. He's promising to give to us his peace, a heavenly peace, a supernatural peace, a, an internal and permanent peace that's independent of circumstance. Friend, the truth is that the peace of God God's peace can only come to a sinful man when he is entered into peace with God. You can't have the peace of God without peace with God. Meaning Peace is found when your relationship with God is rectified. When it's fixed. We are all wrestling with something beyond us. And it's when we come to the point of surrender. When we come to the point, of I I accept what Jesus did on my behalf. I accept that gift. I know I can't do it on my own. When our sin is taken on Jesus and it's exchanged with his right standing where we now have peace with God. It's in that moment that we now also have the peace of God. I don't have to earn God's favor. There's great peace in that. Nor can anything take that favor away from me. No matter what this world brings my direction, I have peace with God. In the midst of the storm, I can have peace. In the midst of the hurricane called children, you can have peace. Not peace based on the circumstances, but something that's inside of you, something eternal, something yielded and resulted by the Holy Spirit. Amazingly, this is such an incredible piece that the Apostle Paul describes it as something in Philippians 4, verse 7, which surpasses all understanding. And again, this is how the world sees that we're different. There's no greater testimony to the presence of Jesus in someone's life when the world sees that things are crazy around you and that you are tethered to a rock? How do you have peace with that diagnosis? How do you have peace with that trial? How do you have peace with that circumstance? I need to know how you have peace because I can't find anything in this world close to it. And the answer is, well, it's not of this world. It's the peace of God. Verse 28, Jesus continuing, You have heard me say to you that I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice because I have said I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe I will no longer talk much with you. For the ruler of this world is coming, but he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. (laughs) Imagine being one of the men sitting at this table. I mean, in addition to the things we've looked at, the other gospel accounts also, also let us know that Jesus takes this the Passover Seder tradition, and he redefines things, and he flips it on us, and he institutes communion. Hey, this bread and this cup, they've meant something for thousands. of. No longer do they mean the things that, that you think they do. This is my body, broken for you. And, and you're like, what? This is my blood that will be spilt for you. I mean, Jesus, this, around this Last Supper, this table, I mean, heavy things have been coming. But imagine, as the conversation's winding down, you hear Jesus say this. Guys, the ruler of this world is coming. Now that's intimidating. That's intimidating. And yet, while Jesus knew that Satan was planning a full-blown attack that night, Jesus continues, But he has nothing in me. Though in the hours to come the devil would indeed have his moment. In just a few short days, Jesus would emerge victorious. The attack is coming. Arise, let us go. John 14 closes with that statement, this declaration. Arise, let's get up. And let's leave here. Leave the upper room. There is no question that John here is recording for us a change in the underlying scene. They're leaving the upper room. And then in chapters 15, 16, and 17, it appears Jesus continues the dialogue with these men. In fact, the next movement John records for us. So 14 closes, arise, let us go. The next movement we find in John 18, verse 1, where John records that when Jesus had spoken these words recorded in the last few chapters, he went out and his disciples over the brook Kidron to where there was a garden which he and the disciples entered, this being the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, there's been some mystery as to how does, how does this all work. It's likely that Jesus and the disciples leave the upper room. Chapter 14 closes, they get up and they leave. It would appear that the conversation continues. The conversation in 15, 16, and 17, as they make their way along the streets of Jerusalem, under the cover of darkness, it's nighttime, Through the temple precincts, they're talking. Before ultimately exiting the east gate. Then, chapter 18, according to John, once outside the city, they trek across the Kidron Valley, enter the Garden of Gethsemane, located at the base of the Mount of Olives. Now, at some point during this nightly stroll, so they've left the upper room, so as we look at the next few chapters, they're working their way through Jerusalem. They're walking and talking. At some point during the stroll, John recalls Jesus now saying, chapter 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. This statement Jesus makes declaring, I am the true vine. It didn't occur without some context. Now, the text doesn't tell us where they are. John doesn't tell us where they're standing. But according to first century Jewish historian, a man by the name of Josephus, on one of the western gates, which is where Jesus would have entered the Temple Mount, there was this gigantic door, about 60 feet tall, it was all golden. And on this door, there was this golden vine that hung across the expanse, so big that there were clusters of golden grapes hanging on it as tall as a man. This is according to Josephus, which is not totally outside of the realm of possibility. Herod the Great, this was Herod's temple. It was, during its day, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People traveled from all over the world non-Jews, just to see the thing. So the idea of there on one of the western gates being such a, a, an expanse, such a look, is entirely possible. But man, doesn't it add a bit more context if that's where Jesus is when he makes this statement? Now, the ornament of the vine was included, we know, in all temple architecture. And it was included to recognize a deeper symbol that Israel was the vineyard of Jehovah God. In fact, there are many passages that substantiate this picture. Psalms 80, Isaiah 5, Ezekiel 15, Hosea 10, just to name a few. The illustration of Israel being the being vine, God being the vineyard. You know, like, the, the, this finds itself all over the Old Testament. It's well established. As a matter of fact, aside from that, earlier in his ministry, Jesus builds off that same imagery when he taught a parable of the vineyard. and this parable, Jesus ends up rebuking the religious establishment. It's likely, at least it's my theory, that when Jesus and his disciples, they leave the upper room, they're working their way through these winding streets. They get to the western gate. Again, it's, it's on the way. That Jesus stops, that he takes a moment here at the gate, To teach them an important lesson. In the shadow of this very decor. Jesus turns to these men. Looking up at this gigantic vine and these grapes. And he says, guys. I am the true vine. The final I am statement. In the Greek here, the word true. means genuine. Real. I am the, the genuine thing. He's saying that Israel and their religious system would no longer be the way to connect with God. Oh, you see that vine? You think you know what that means? Oh, no more. I, I am the true vine. I am replacing the vine of Israel, this religious system, as the way to God. And it is a truth that where the law had failed to produce godly results, fruit, Jesus would indeed succeed. Now, in light of the fact that Jesus is seeking to prepare these men for his coming departure, using this particular picture of the vine, the branches, the fruit, the vine dresser, all of this is apt. It's appropriate. What Jesus is seeking to emphasize was a necessary and continued dependency upon him. It's as though Jesus is saying to them, Guys, I know I'm leaving. And I know you're having a hard time wrapping your brain around that and you're, you're trying to figure out how, how we'll stay connected and I'm telling you about the Spirit and the Helper, but just know it's important we stay connected. Matter of fact, it's critical. Understand, a cluster of grapes can never exist apart from a branch's relationship with the vine. A connection between the two, it's not just important, it's essential. It's essential. In playing off of this picture, Jesus is making it clear to us that a disciple of Jesus must remain completely and absolutely dependent upon him for any fruit, any godly results to be yielded in his or her life. It's not just important, it's critical. It's not enough, friend, to add Jesus to your life. And using this picture, Jesus is letting us know that you must be completely and utterly dependent upon Him for the source of life itself. As with the lesson presented in the washing of the disciples' feet, some get this analogy, some conclude, apply the analogy in ways that shouldn't be because we make a false assumption. Again, as with the disciples' washing, washing of the feet, And this analogy, keep in mind, and it's important for clarity, that Jesus is not speaking of salvation here. This will play itself out later in in, in the analogy, how how he extrapolates out the picture. Look again at verse 3. He sets up the, the, the analogy, the illustration, and then he reiterates. Again, like he did with the washing of their feet, guys, you're already clean. Because of the word which I have spoken to you. And again, the word clean, this is a, a Levitical term. Clean, holy, pure, perfect. Jesus is not talking here about salvation. What he's articulating pertains to fruitfulness. Jesus says, I'll read it again. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. Now, in the context of his father being the vine dresser, Jesus is telling them how the father would work in their lives so that they would produce the maximum amount of fruit, fruitfulness. Before we get to how the father does this, it's probably helpful for me to take a moment and define what Jesus means when he mentions fruit. Like in the analogy, what is fruit? In a broad sense, Jesus is speaking practically of what his presence in our lives should yield through our lives. Fruit. Again, in the analogy, Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. The fruit is what's produced from that connection. By its very definition, fruit is what a branch naturally yields from the relationship that it has with the vine. Keep in mind, the vine produces fruit through the branch. As a byproduct of this connection, fruit is not manufactured. It's not forced by the branch. Fruit is yielded. It's an organic manifestation of a branch being connected to a vine. Beyond this, fruit. It's evidence of life in a branch. You know, a dead branch never yields fruit. Additionally, a branch is alive for only one reason. It's connected to the vine that provides it life. The vine provides everything necessary for living. And this is Jesus' point. As the vine, and we being the branches, our connection to him is the source of spiritual life. Now, generally speaking, the fruit naturally produced through your relationship with Jesus It can be all kinds of things. And the Bible actually presents all kinds of illustrations of what's resulting as evidence of the life that we have in Jesus. Fruit. You know, fruit can be the the byproduct of evangelism. As you share your faith with others, when someone gives their life to Jesus, when you're able to lead someone to the cross, that's fruit in your life. That person and their salvation is fruit. Aside from that, fruit can manifest scripturally with what we did earlier. The praising of the Lord. Worship and song is fruit. The Bible describes the rearing of godly children as being fruit. This working of God through you and the world. Fruit can be a manifestation of generosity, etc., etc., etc. Now, more specifically... In Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23, Paul builds off of this very analogy by describing for us the fruit of the Spirit. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then he adds things like joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, fruitfulness, gentleness, self-control. Then in Ephesians 5, verse 9, Paul also includes righteousness as a fruit of the Spirit, truth. These things being produced from your life through a connection you have with Jesus. Because many get the implications of the illustration wrong. Let me repeat. A branch, which is you, doesn't make fruit. You don't produce fruit. The vine produces fruit through the branch. The branch, in the analogy, is nothing more than a conduit, an extension of a vine. The branch's only job in the context isn't to make fruit happen, but to connect with the vine. It's not an accident that this idea of fruit is also described in the Bible with other terms. like You'll run across Christ-likeness or godliness. The fruit of the Spirit, friend, is really nothing more than a list describing the person and character of the Holy Spirit. While the law employs a list of commands for you to obey in an attempt to become more like God, to make fruit, Jesus here, he's saying, instead of what the law does, I'm going to change this. When he says, I am the true vine, what he's getting at is he's saying, Unlike the law, which gives you things to do to make fruit, which is silly because you're just a branch, I'm going to offer instead a relationship with me, the vine, that will naturally yield godliness. You don't do godliness. You become godly by being connected to me, the vine. You see, the only way for your life to become more like Jesus, which is the goal, friend of Christianity, for your life to become more like Jesus But the only way for that to happen is for Jesus to manifest through your life. It's not an accident. Think of it like this. How do we refer to to, to grapes? Like, what's what's the phrase? We call grapes the fruit of the branch. No. We refer to them as what? Fruit of the vine. That's the fruit of the vine. No one says, hey, that's the fruit of the branch. No one cares about the branch. It's the fruit of the vine. You see, when it's all said and done, the fruit of the Spirit, all of those wonderful things, they manifest through your life as the Spirit is working through your life. To have fruit of the Spirit, you have to be dependent on the Spirit behind the fruit. The simple reality is fruit. Fruit is always characteristic of the vine itself, logically. Expanding the analogy, but an apple tree, it produces apples. I'm not an arborist, but I can put two to two together. I know it's an apple tree because I see apples. Also, in contrast, I know an orange tree because I see oranges. I know the tree by the fruit that it produces. You see, in much the same way, godly fruit manifesting from your life is nothing more than the evidence of God's direct involvement in your life. What you're connected to. Christ-likeness can only be produced from a branch connected to Christ. Once more, all of this follows just a natural order. Have you ever seen a branch struggling to yield fruit? No, you don't see a branch doing anything. All a branch does, like its only role in the process, is to hang out on the vine. It just connects and hangs. And then organically, fruit appears. Branch did nothing but hang out with the vine. And then fruit came. It's organic. It's natural. It's not manufactured. something you have to do. So it's with this in mind, ask yourself. How does God then ensure that a branch yields all the fruit that it can from the nutrients that it draws from the vine? Well, first, Jesus says in verse 2, he says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, sadly, that is a terrible translation. I don't don't even know how we end up with it. In the Greek, the word word, behind takes away which implies falsely kind of the destruction of the branch which is why many people get confused the better translation is to lift up it's not to take away it's to lift up what jesus is referring to was a moment whereby the vine dresser and the process of going through the vineyard runs across a branch that's down in the dirt It's in need of repair. It's on the ground, which makes yielding fruit impossible. So out of love and compassion, the vine dresser comes along and he lifts up the branch. He tends to damage. He repositions it, ties it up, makes sure it's grafted in so that it can bear fruit. You know, sometimes, (laughs) I'm not going to pardon the pun, go out on a limb. That wasn't in the notes. That just came to me. But life in this world, you know what? Sometimes you get knocked down. You've been knocked down? I have. Like, sure, in those moments, you're still connected to the vine. But you would lie if you didn't say that you, you had been buried under a mountain of cares. You've fallen. You've gotten dirty. You've ended up down in the dumps. And it's hard to produce fruit in such a dynamic. But I want you to know that the father, the vine dresser, when he comes across such a branch, because the goal is you yielding fruit, does he come and cut you off, throw you? No, he doesn't do that. You're still connected to the vine. Instead, what does he do? He comes along and he lifts you up and he cleans you off. And restores you back to a place of health and fruitfulness. But that's not all the vine dresser does. Look again. Jesus also says that the branches that bear fruit, well, they require pruning so that they may bear more fruit. Now concerning even healthy branches, there are times when saplings naturally emerge. Things connected to us, not necessarily the vine. And while not all bad, because a sapling isn't necessary, they end up minimizing productivity because it diverts resources from the fruit. And in such a situation as the vine dresser is tending the vineyard, and he comes across these saplings, he lovingly prunes a branch of anything that would prohibit the best fruit from possibly being produced. You know, while the pruning of dead saplings, what we might think of as sin is obvious. The calculus of the pruner centers not on what's good and bad for a branch. No, 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 no. The calculus of the pruner is what's good and best for yielding fruit. Because that's the whole point of the branch. Sometimes there are things in our lives that's not it's not about sin. But is this helping? This is not a matter of, of what's moral, of what's good and bad. It's, it's a matter of what's good and what's best in running this race. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 12, we have a, a phrase, I think, a, a bit of an easier way. The author says, For we also, since we are surrounded by great, so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, And the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame set down at the right hand of the throne of God. You're running a race. Sin, that makes sense. We understand how that slows us down. But the greater calculus, the greater determination, what you must consider is weight. Things that are, it's not sin, but is it helping? Is it slowing me? And and it's not defined. Now, in the context of Jesus being the vine, you and I, the branches, the role of the Father as the vine dresser, all working in our lives to maximize fruitfulness, these things established, Jesus then answers the obvious and age old question. Okay, I, I get the picture. Jesus is the vine. I'm the branch connected to the vine. The fruit's really not me. It's the vine. My job is to stay connected to the vine. And the process of bearing maximum fruit, God, the Father, and the way that He lovingly does comes along. And, and if He sees me down in the dumps, that's not good for fruitfulness. And so He lifts me up. He cleans me off. He restores me. He uses others to do that. I get that. That's cool. Sometimes He's got to cut things out, slowing me down, taking away from fruit. Sometimes it's bad stuff. Sometimes it's unhelpful. Okay, I get all that, but still, I want to be a good branch. i got to do something. What do I do? And so Jesus answers this question. He says in verse 4, knowing we would think this, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. The application of this analogy for the branch is simple. Since a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, the branch has one job and one job alone. Abide in the vine. In the original language, this word abide. It means to remain in place. And to not depart. It implies staying and remaining. The word abide implies the continuance of state. Of position. A continuing connection. Jesus' point here is simple. Since fruit is produced by the vine. Working itself through the branch. The only role of the branch is to abide. To remain connected. To remain and stay in the vine. Please know that there is nothing good, godly, noble, or righteous that ever originates in you. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. You see, it's only logical that without the vine, there's no life in the branch, let alone fruit. And in the same way, please know, there is no way that you can have godliness without god there's no way you can have christ likeness without christ without the spirit how can you ever hope to see spiritual growth this phrase you can do nothing can be translated as without me you don't have the power the dynamis to do anything you're powerless as a branch Your relationship with Jesus as the vine and connection to Him is a non-negotiable. It's an essential. And it's because this is the case that what should your focus be on? Should it be on bearing fruit? No. You don't have a role in that. Your focus should be on abiding in Jesus. Staying connected with Jesus. Remaining in Jesus. Knowing that fruit is impossible apart from abiding. We all want, all religion wants to to answer the question of how do you become more godly. And they give you a lot of things to do to be more godly. Jesus says there's nothing you can do without me. I will produce godliness. Hang out with me. The truth is abiding is of such importance for someone to be a disciple, that Jesus adds, verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they are burned. Now, while there is no mistaking the very strong warning presented in this verse, refrain from building concrete doctrine or dogma off the continuation of what is simply an analogy. People get that confused. Jesus, again, he's speaking to his disciples. He's already called them clean. He is stressing to them how abiding is essential for fruitfulness. That's the point of the analogy. And to hammer home this reality, he continues the illustration by saying a branch that isn't abiding. We're talking about a non-abiding branch. Not one that is. One that isn't. It's withered, cast out, gathered, thrown into the fire. It's just the analogy. It's what you would have done. And Jesus' point is not to get into the once-saved-always-saved debate. Can you lose your salvation? If I was abiding once, but now I've decided... He's not getting into that. That's not the point of the passage or the analogy. His point is to emphasize one thing. Hey, it's essential you abide. So essential, guess what? There's no true disciples that aren't abiding in me. There's a point we should consider. Well, you might consider yourself to have a relationship with Jesus. Do you have any fruit being produced of that relationship? I got a relationship with Jesus, okay. Well, what in your life reflects Jesus? Show me the fruit. The reason that's important is a branch without fruit is likely a branch that isn't abiding. Okay, Pastor Zach, how do I abide? Well, Jesus answers that. And we'll close with this. He says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Not only is Jesus saying the purpose of bearing fruit is not to bring glory to you, it's to bring glory to the Father. But Jesus, he mentions here the the key connection. What's the key connection? Jesus bridges two ideas. He says, abiding in, in, in me, abide in him, and his word abiding in you. Abiding, the continuance, the connection, your relationship with Jesus. How do you maintain and continue and grow? How do you abide and connect in Jesus? Now, there's all kinds of ways. Spending time in prayer is one of them. There's lots of ways you can connect with God. But the main way, Jesus ties abiding with what? His word. This connection between the person of Jesus and that book in your hand, it's a strong one. To the point that in Revelation 19, Jesus is known as the Word of God. The Word is presented. We have faith. How? By hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful because that's how you get to know Jesus. That's how you connect with Him. That's how you abide in Him. You abide in Him, you abide in His Word. That's why we spend our time on Sunday mornings doing that, abiding in his word. Why? Because you're a branch that needs to abide in the vine for there to be any spiritual fruit. I'm not up here giving you a bunch of like 12 steps for you to somehow make yourself better. We're just giving you Jesus through the word. Because that's how we abide. It's the essence of life. The word of God and its connection and relationship with Jesus, how it reveals Jesus. So strong that we're even told in Hebrews 4.12, for the Word of God is alive. What makes that book so unique in your hand is it's the only book that's a living thing. It breathes. It's living. It's powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. Piercing, even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. Zach, how do I abide? You get into God's word. I'll illustrate this very simple for you. Have You ever gone through a season where you just really felt distant from Jesus? That a chasm had developed. 99 times out of 100, When I'm in a counseling appointment with someone in that type of a situation, well, let me ask if you feel distant from Jesus, when was the last time you were in His Word? Uh, Well, yeah, I mean, I can't even remember. Well, you feel distant from Jesus because you're distant from Jesus, because you haven't spent any time with Him, you're not abiding in Him. This is how we connect, this is how we stay connected. If Sunday morning is your only abiding, it's very likely you have very, very little fruit. If you have a conversation with someone once a week, that's good. But that's not how you abide. We abide in His Word. And then guess what? His Word abides in us. And when it does that, it changes us. We have life flowing through us. In us. The Spirit. And then what begins to yield, what begins to result, is this awesome stuff. Things not of you. You start to look like Jesus. And not you. Have you ever noticed that, that old people, old couples, they look alike over time? It's a terrible reality for Jessica, but... You know why? It's it's the years of abiding. Looking into the face of the other. You laugh at the same things. You spend time with one another. And over that time, you rub off. You hang out with Jesus, and Jesus rubs off. The more time you spend with Jesus, the more you reflect Jesus. Moses spent time on the mountaintop with God. And people knew it. Why? Because he glowed the Shekinah glory of God. Stephen looked into the face of Jesus as rocks were being thrown at him. And we're told that his face shone. Why? Because he was reflecting Jesus. Build off the, you're just a moon. You don't originate light. You reflect it. And the closer you are, the brighter you are. The more fruit that's produced. Abide in his word, he'll abide in you. So, Father, Lord, we just let that thought settle and.